This morning, as we continue in the Rolling Stone series, we're going to pick up with the topic of the Tomb of Conformity. So far, we've looked at a number of things, the Tomb of Desperation and Depression and Anxiety, the Tomb of Financial Bondage. Last week, I talked about the Tomb of Isolation, and so today, it's time to roll away the stone of conformity. And what do I mean by conformity? Well, the perfect sermon illustration for conformity, of course, is Plato. Parents love Plato, don't they? <laughs> and teachers, right. So just imagine this is your life, your, your person, if you will. It's going to be shaped, isn't it? It's going to be brought under influences. And what shapes it will determine what it looks like, right? So if I do this, if the pressure is my hand, then that's the shape of my life. If I, however, do this, then my life looks very different, right? But it's conforming to the influences and the pressures. And in our day and age, we have a lot of pressures on us, don't we? We have a lot of cultural pressures that come down on us, and sometimes we find ourselves absolutely entombed by those pressures. We feel like we are not free. We feel like we are responsible to live up to those influences. And I just want you to know today that that is not true. And as we go through God's word today, I pray that you will find release from any of those influences in your life that you know ought not to be there, that you know run counter to what God wants to do in your life. So when you have a birthday, if, if you're like me, I always think over the whole course of my life. I think about the path that got me to where I am today. And one of the questions that often I hear when I'm talking about age and birthdays with people is, what would you say is the most amazing thing that you've seen in your lifetime? You think over your life, what's the most amazing thing that you've seen? My father turned 93 a couple of weeks ago. And I was just contemplating the things that he's seen in his life. You know, the advent of television, the advent of space travel, some amazing things. And I asked him what he thought the most incredible innovation was. And he actually said something that surprised me for his generation. But it was the very thing that I would say is the most significant innovation in my lifetime. And that is this, personal computer. The ability to have so much information and so much power so readily available in our hands. But I remember way back when these things were first being introduced, when you, yeah, the Stone Age, when, when the idea of everybody having access to a personal computer was revolutionary. And in fact, it was so anticipated that Apple decided they were going to spend a million dollars at that time to do a commercial, to introduce the personal computer. I want you to take a look at that commercial. On December 5th, 1973. The Super Bowl was always a venue for a huge audience. But Master Lock well, was the only one that did something exclusive. That's a Master Lock commercial. 
Oh. There we go. Sorry. What makes something memorable? I think the challenge has always been to break rules, find something new, find something unexpected as a way of engaging people and telling a story. I met Steve when he was 24 years old. Steve, from the day I met him, was passionate and believed totally that this technology wasn't just going to be a business for him and it wasn't just going to be a hobby for Wozniak. This was going to change the world. Today, one year after Lisa, we are introducing the third industry milestone product, Macintosh. So there was this challenge from Steve, I got to introduce Macintosh. It's got to be dramatic, it's got to be famous, it's, it's got to be different. We had a meeting where we presented a whole bunch of thinking that went into launching Macintosh. He thought it was brave, he thought it was great. It was the board of directors thinking it was really stupid and irresponsible. And There was a moment in time when the board was trying to pull the plug on all the funds and have it not run, and he was there with Wozniak, and he said, well, I'll pay for half of it if you will. They didn't have to come to that, but they did make that uh, overture at one point. So you open on this place that represents the future with people marching to a central hall. Our idea was that Big Brother represented the control of technology by the few. Lots of people decided, partly by the bluish quality, partly by the competitive uh, situation uh, Apple found themselves in, that Big Brother represented IBM. And that uh, really wasn't the intent, but it probably worked on that level as well. But running down one of the corridors was a girl who you saw glimpses of. She came bursting into the back of the room and she stopped and swung once, twice, and then heaved the hammer. And a giant explosion. And you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. 1984 wasn't designed to only run on the Super Bowl. It was designed to have a media life beyond the Super Bowl, but the board of directors at Apple decided it was irresponsible since it didn't show the product and the product wasn't even available yet to continue running it. And that becomes almost part of the legend. Oh, and the genius of just running it once on the Super Bowl. Every news show the next morning was basically saying, the game was okay, but did you see the commercial? Our vision was more about the idea of how the world was going to change because of computers, not that we were changing the Super Bowl that day. But it did create a phenomenon where people started thinking, designing advertising specifically for the Super Bowl and keeping it secret and having it be a surprise. All those things were kind of born out of 1984 running once. Trying to live up to what Steve expected of what I did and what we were doing together became one of the you know true kind of joys of my life. To be in the advertising business, you don't often get to be part of something that important, that world-changing. Lots of people kind of misjudged what the commercial was and what the commercial could do, and of course nobody believed that 30 years later people would still be talking about it. So I really wanted you to see the commercial, but 
you get the idea. The commercial is set, obviously, based in the novel 1984, which was written by George Orwell in 1949. So this is the 70th anniversary of the novel. And the interesting thing is the novel was written in 49, set in 84, which is 35 years, and now it's 2019, which is 35 years forward from 1984. Or it's not interesting, it's just a dumb fact. <laughs> How many of you have read that novel or are at least familiar with the novel? I know at one time it used to be required reading in a lot of literature classes, but the story basically revolves around a character by the name of Winston Smith. And Winston Smith lives in this new society of Oceana. And Oceana is a place where there are authorities that control everything, and they are led by the entity known as Big Brother. It's a question whether or not Big Brother even is a person. But Winston Smith falls in love with a woman named Julia. And that's against the rules. That's against the law. So basically, the story is this tension about Winston Smith having to choose between his individuality as expressed in his love affair with Julia or in conformity to the system that is being run by Big Brother. And spoiler alert, this isn't the Game of Thrones. Spoiler alert, if you haven't read it by now, you're not going to read it, right? In the end, it says this. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Big Brother. <laughs> Scary. But think about this. We have kind of a love-hate relationship with conformity, don't we? I mean, you saw a picture of kind of like all those people sitting in the rows, watching the same screen, dressed the same way, same expressions on their faces, and we'd go, oh, I never want to be like that. But at the same time, in so many true aspects of our lives, we actually are more than willing to conform. We're more than willing to fit in. We're more than willing to want to be like everybody else. And why is that? What is the appeal that comes with conformity? Well, I think it's a couple of things. One, it promises to meet some needs that are very basic to us as human beings. And at the same time, it promises to alleviate some of the fears that we all carry deep within inside of us. So for instance, we have a need to feel connected, don't we? And we have a fear of being alienated. We have a need to be accepted, and we have a fear of being unwanted. We have a need to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And yet we also have a fear of being insignificant. And so there are influences in our world that are more than happy to try to step into those needs and fears and promise you the way out, promise you the way to peace, promise you the way to connection and acceptance and significance. So the question that we ask is, was well, it wrong to have those needs met? The answer, of course, is no. But sometimes the things that promise us real life actually lead us deeper into the tomb. And that's where many find themselves today. Who liked the TV show MASH? Boy, I'm really digging back age, right? Remember Frank Burns? Major Frank Burns in one of the, one of the shows. You know, Frank was just the go-by-the-rules kind of guy, by the Army book. Here's a quote that he says in one of the shows. He says, unless we each conform... Unless we obey orders, unless we follow our leaders blindly, there's no possible way we can remain free. <laughs> it seems like a crazy paradox, and yet I know people who live in that very same paradox. 
So here's the takeaway I want you to begin with today. Conformity is actually death because we are sacrificing ourselves in submission to the powers that be. That's what makes it death. We sacrifice ourselves in submission to the powers that be, to the things that we allow to have significant influence in our lives, right? And so we lose our individuality. We come to die. When you say, well, wait a minute, Pastor Chris, aren't I supposed to die to self? Yes, you are supposed to die to yourself, but we are to die to ourselves for the sake of Christ, not the sake of culture. Let me say that again. We die to ourselves for the sake of Christ, not the sake of culture. And the passage that I want us to focus on this morning is found in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And I'll be reading it in the message version because I think Eugene Peterson in his translation here has captured this so beautifully. Listen to what it says. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, your eating, your going to work, your walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. That's really beautiful. The NIV has it much more succinctly. It says, this is your true and proper worship. So if you want to know what worshiping God is really all about, what we're doing here today is an expression of it, but much deeper in our lives on an everyday basis. It's simply giving what we are, giving what we do over for the purposes of God in our lives. That's our true and proper worship. But the second verse is the one I really want to concentrate on closely today. It goes on to say, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Without even thinking. Instead, he says, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Because unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of what? Immaturity. Level of immaturity. God brings the best out of you. Develops a well-formed maturity in you. So do you want to be immature or do you want to be mature? I know what you'd say. Sometimes my actions, your actions probably belie that answer. But let's dive deeper so that we can come to understand the conformity here that we're talking about. And we're going to look at it in three ways. First, we'll talk about how we can tell when we're dead. Sometimes we don't even know we're dead, right? Secondly, we'll talk about what the resurrection life promises to us. And then lastly, we'll talk about the practicality of how we can learn to walk out of the tomb, because that's the point of the whole series, right? If God has gone out of his way to come to earth and become one of us, and to suffer and die on our behalf, and then to be raised up again so that the tomb is rolled away, what are we still doing hanging out there? So how can we tell when we're dead? Well, you'll notice in that passage he says, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. The NIV translation of this is simply... Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Again, it's what influence are you going to allow to dictate the way you see things, the way you think about things, the way you act, 
there's a pattern of the world. So here's your life flattened out and smashed down, which is the way a lot of us feel, right? And this is the world, generically. It is whatever your world looks like in this season of your life. I should never try to bring too many sermon illustrations. So the world is exerting an influence on you, right? And it's making you look like it. You're conforming to the pattern of the world. And that's what Paul is telling us here that we must avoid. He's telling us that that's not what's best for us. That's not the path to maturity, or should we say, to discipleship. Because if we let the world influence us, then we are disciples of what? The world, right? So we are not to become so well adjusted to our culture that we conform to the pattern of the world. But what, what really are we talking about when we talk about world? Well, we're talking about the cultural pressures that all of us feel to conform so that we fit in, so that we have a sense of place and that we are doing what people tell us to do. And what are some of those pressures? Well, one of them, this is a flag if you can't tell. Let's use this to represent authority, right? Authority wants us to do what they want us to do, right? Doesn't matter what kind of authority we're talking about, but they are also exerting this pressure on us. I just think this is gonna end badly. <laughs> They're exerting their pressure on us so that we're conforming to what the authorities want. What are some of the others in our lives? Well, how about our emotions? That's the one we don't normally think about. But our emotions represented by this heart. Our emotions are pressing on us, trying to get us to conform to their desires, trying to get us to conform to their wants, right? And so there our life begins to look like something led by the seat of our pants. And what about how other people think of us? Peer pressure, our reputation, represented by this quotation, right? What people are saying about you. Who doesn't want to look good in the eyes of other people? We all do, right? And that's a pressure that begins to influence and it pushes down on us, and we begin to respond to it until ultimately we care more about what other people say and think than what we say and think about ourselves. We lose our identity. We conform to the world. What does the world value? The world values essentially power and wealth and acclaim. Those are the influences that we adjust to, that we buy into, that we begin to pattern ourselves after without even thinking about it. We, we assimilate easily with what the people around us look like and say and do, and we don't do anything at all to stand out or apart from the crowd. We're actually afraid of that most of the time, aren't we? Well, why is this such a problem? Why is Paul even telling us and warning us about conforming to the world? Well, Jesus says pretty bluntly 
In Luke 16, 15, he says, What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. You ever read that passage? You ever jumped out at you? What people value highly is detestable. It's a very strong word. It's a very clear indication. Is detestable in God's sight. That kind of takes away the whole notion of compromise, right? The whole notion that we can walk with one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the kingdom of the world. They have different aims. They have different values. They have different things that get exalted. But I love the way the Apostle John puts it in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 17. We have this one. Do not love this world, nor the things that it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. Let me say that again. When you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, a pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from the world. And this world is fading away. You see the problem here? We're putting so much effort into this, and it's all going to disappear. This world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. See, we can see this as this is a matter of eternal life and death. This is a significant issue. And a lot of times I'm not even sure we recognize the power of influences in our lives. So it's such a problem to not stand out because we as God's people have been called to do exactly that, to stand out, to be holy as he is holy. The church is the ecclesia, or the ecclesia is the same word, and that means the people that are called out. And what are we called out to be? We're called out to be salt and light, people who flavor the world differently, people who illuminate and see the world differently. That's what we are. We can't be this and be that at the same time. See, Israel was the chosen people of God, right? He selected them out of all the peoples on the earth as the chosen people. He said, I will set you apart and call you by my name so that you can live distinctly among all of the other peoples around you, among all of your neighbors. You will be different. And they failed to do it. They failed in their calling. And the reason they failed in their calling is because they chose conformity over holiness. There's a great story back in 1 Samuel that's talking about the people recognizing that this great prophet Samuel, who's led them and given them prosperity as a people, is about to die. And he's got a couple of sons that he wants to install into the office of leader. And these sons are not good people. And the people recognize that they're not good people, and they say, no, thank you. Well, you know what we really want? We want a king. And Samuel's like, what? God is your king. You already have a king. And they're like, no, 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 no. We want a king. And this isn't what they actually say. They say, we want to be like all the other nations. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations. We want to be like all the other nations. It says it three times in 1 Samuel 8. We want to be like everybody else. We want to conform. And it all goes so badly for them. 
They lose everything. They wind up in exile in Babylon. And when they come back, they're still in such a weakened state that eventually it's Rome that comes and destroys their temple, destroys their land, and removes them. It doesn't end well when we choose to be like all the other people. We have been called to something so much more beautiful, so much more powerful, so much more transformative. So Jesus says it's detestable. John says it's all passing away. But you know who you really want to go to in the Bible to get it really bluntly? James. James says this, you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Hint for you, you don't want to be considered God's enemy. Because that would be a true death sentence, right? Especially, again, after all Jesus did. He went to the cross for the specific purpose of reconciling us to God and to offer us this new life outside the tomb. So, Secondly, what then does the resurrection life actually promise? Well, Romans 12.2 says this, Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. See, culture influences us through our senses. It, it, it appeals to our human nature. It appeals to our flesh, our whatever you want to call it to conform to that which is absolutely temporary, that which is passing away. So think of immaturity here not really in terms of, of, of an age thing as much as in terms of a duration, a chronology. It's immature in the fact that it won't last. It doesn't produce eternity, right? That's what the world is offering you. That's the influence that the world is exerting on you. So don't misunderstand what the scripture is saying. Culture, is, culture can be beautiful, right? Art, music, all of those things can be beautiful, but all of those things are temporary. Greece was a great empire. It's gone. Rome was a great empire. It's gone. You know what? America is a great empire, but guess what? It's going to be gone. God, however, doesn't influence us through our senses. God influences us through his spirit to conform to what is eternal. He makes clear to us what maturity looks like. And maturity is quite simply this. It's conformity to Christ. It's replacing all of these things, getting rid of these influences out of our lives, and becoming this. And that only. A little later, or a little earlier, I guess I should say, in Romans 8, Eugene Peterson writes this in the message, Romans 8, 29. He says, God knew what he was doing. Oh, amen. From the very beginning, he decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The son stands first in the line of humanity he has restored. We see, listen to this, the original and intended shape of our lives 
there in him. All that humanity was created to be, all that you and I were created to be is modeled for us in the life of Jesus. All of it, not part of it, not most of it, not just the majority of it, all that we were created to be. So if your heart's desire is to be all that you can be, this is the way, right here. So see, conformity is actually the path. It's just not cultural conformity. It's Christ-like conformity. That's why Jesus could stand at the very tomb or the grave of his friend Lazarus and say to Martha these powerful, powerful words, I am the resurrection and I am the life. The life, the life that you want, the life that you're seeking, it's in Christ. It's in conforming to Christ. So my second takeaway for you is this. Conforming to Christ is trusting that only God has the power to grant us new life. Only God. Not God and people's opinions. Not God and what the authorities tell us. Not God and our emotions, not God and anything that the world offers us. There is no compromise. It's only this. He alone. All the rest, all, everything Washington tells you, everything Wall Street tells you, everything the Pentagon tells you, everything Hollywood tells you, they are all promising you something that they cannot deliver. They absolutely cannot. So let's look, lastly, at how this conformity happens, the practical side, how we can learn to walk out of the tomb. There's four keys that Eugene Peterson lists here for you. The first one, remember, he said, fix your attention on God. Give me your attention. See the difference? <laughs> I say that everybody looks at me as opposed to looking down, looking at the screen, thinking about what you're having for lunch. Fix your attention on God. What does that mean? It means practice contemplation. It means we get to a place where we devote time, we devote our focus, we devote our thought life to God. He's got to be the primary thing in your schedule because it doesn't happen naturally. All of the other influences happen naturally. God, you have to give space for. And we do that through the process of contemplation. Secondly, Peterson says, you will be changed from the inside out. The NIV says, you'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I love that this is actually in, I think this is right, if any of you are English teachers, the passive voice of the verb here meaning it is something that we don't do. It's something that is being done to us and for us. We will be changed from the inside out as we contemplate God. We will be transformed by the renewing of our minds as our minds are contemplating God. It's something that he wants to do for us. It's something that he desires to do for us. In fact, Paul will tell us elsewhere in Scripture that God works in us to will and to act according to his purposes. Who's acting? Who's? God. 
Not we try harder and then we will and we act according to his purpose. Not we let other influences impact us and then we will and act according to the purposes of God. Only in this do we learn how to will and to act according to the purposes of God. So what is our role? What do we do in this? We simply make ourselves available. We simply come naked before God and say, this is who I am, this is where I am, this is where I'm struggling. We position ourselves to receive God's guidance. Jesus promised us as believers, as followers, that we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, a Holy Spirit that will guide us into all truth, who will take from Christ and give to us. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. What we have to do is open ourselves up to that Spirit. And how do we do that? Well, we have to remove the distractions. We have to push through the doubts and the fears that are part of living in a broken world. Thirdly, he says, readily recognize what he wants from you. That's hard, isn't it? Can we be honest? It's hard. It takes practice, it takes skill, but it's a skill that we can learn. If we're disciplined, if we practice, then we will learn. And what are we learning? We're learning to discern. We're learning to hear and become familiar with the voice of God. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice, right? My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. How well would you say you're hearing the voice of God today? How well do you know the good shepherd's call as he tries to lead us out of the tomb and into the resurrection life? So we need to learn to discern. And then lastly, he says, quickly respond to it. Obey without hesitation, in other words. Obey without hesitation. Samuel's first job was to anoint Saul as the king, right? When they decide they're going to have a king, he anoints Saul. Saul goes about allowing all kinds of other influences other than God in his life. He cared a whole lot about this. He led his life by this to the point where he actually walks in disobedience to God. He doesn't think he's walked in disobedience. He just thought he found a different way of obeying God. And Samuel has to come to him and say this. He says, guess what, Saul? You've lost the whole kingdom. You've lost everything because obedience is better than sacrifice. You thought you were doing some kind of deep, meaningful religious thing, but you weren't obeying God. And that's something we have to be on guard against, folks, because conforming to Christ, this life is not about rule-keeping. Can I say that again? Mm -hmm. This is not about your do's and don'ts. It's not about rule-keeping. Rule-keeping is religion. And religion, honestly, is just another kind of culture. So this does not equal this. This is how it really is. If this isn't in this, don't go to this. So obey without hesitation. Dallas Willard, 
warns us against this thing. He says, what sometimes goes on in all sorts of Christian institutions is not the formation of people in the character of Christ. It's teaching outward conformity. You don't get in trouble for not having the character of Christ in churches, but you do if you don't obey the laws or the rules. If you don't play by the game, that's when churches get in a huffy. That's religion. That's not Jesus. Conforming to Christ is about the transformation of our character, or to put it more succinctly, let me give you my final takeaway. In becoming like Jesus, I discover my true self. This will not lead to 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 my true self. In becoming like Jesus, I discover my true self. So here's the question I want to leave you with for contemplation for a few minutes. As you just take in what I've shared this morning, ask yourself this question. Where do I most need God's help right now on the path towards maturity in Christ? We talked about the four keys. Do I need help in becoming more contemplative, finding the time and making the focus on God? Do I need to be more available to God? Do I just need to open up my life to put aside some other things that are distracting me and leading me down the wrong path and just make myself available to God? Or do I need more help in learning to discern his voice and following his teaching? In other words, do I need to be more surrendered to the Holy Spirit, able to hear the shepherd leading me beside the still waters and setting the table before me in the presence of my enemies, making my cup overflow. Those are beautiful images of what God wants for you, but you have to hear him to get there. Or do I just, quite frankly, need to be more obedient? I already know all this. I've heard this in all my years of being a follower of Jesus. I just need to be more obedient. I need to learn to obey without hesitation. I need to learn to obey without having it all figured out. I need to learn how to obey without trying to find the loophole to make it easier. I just need help in obeying. And again, the good news is that's not a question of your will. God will do that for you. It's a question of your asking and your submission. So I just believe this morning God is here ready to answer these prayers. I believe God's love for you is so rich and so deep. And his desire is to see the beautiful creation that is you, handmade by him, fearfully and wonderfully made. He wants to see it come to completion. He wants to see it come to fullness. He's fully invested in that. So whatever you need today, God desires to give. God desires to help you take that next step. So as you think of that question, while Zoe plays, once you feel like you have the answer, once you feel secure that this is what you need from God right now in this moment, that's what he's calling you to and saying, then I invite you to get up and go to one of the four whiteboards as we have throughout this series. 
And just write that on the whiteboard. Write it as a prayer in writing as opposed to just speaking it or thinking it. Just say, God, I need your help to be more contemplative. I need your help to be more available. I need your help to be more discerning. I need your help to be more obedient. I want to pray for us that God would tangibly give you the answer to your prayer this morning. But I want you to believe that that's the God who is, who stands ready, who just waits for his children to ask because he's a father who loves to give good gifts. And even in this same book of Romans, Paul poses a hypothetical question. He said, if God did not spare his son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with this, give us everything else? Of course he will. That's his nature. That's his love for you. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you that we can come before the throne of grace with confidence this morning. Knowing your heart toward us is good and beautiful. Knowing that you wait for your children to recognize their needs and come to you and say, Father, would you please grant me that I can become more contemplative, more focused on you? And would you grant me that I can become more available, more open in my life to you? Would you grant me that I may learn to better hear the voice that speaks everything into existence? That among all the other voices, all the other influences, all the other pressures to conform, I can hear the voice that speaks life. And would you grant that I would be obedient without hesitation once I hear your voice to just do what you're asking me to do. Because what you're asking in all of this is for me to come forth from death, to come out of the tomb of conformity into the life of Christ-likeness. So I thank you for what you're going to do in our lives this morning, God. But not only in us, through us. Because as you bring us to a place of healing, as you bring us to a place of restoration, help us to remember there are others in all of these tombs still trapped. And we become the source of your concern and your love and your compassion. So use our voice, use our hearts, use our hands, use our resources to bring others from death to life for the glory of your name because that is our true act of worship. And we thank you for your faithfulness in Jesus' name. And together we say, amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here today. Next week again, we'll wrap up the Rolling Stones series and have these boards magically transformed. So be with us. God bless you. Have a great week.